Lights, and you're listening to P.S. Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's Susan Adoviano from 80 synth pop band Book of Love. That's for the legacy market. That's definitely the case. They, they're not necessarily, I mean, people are coming to shows for a variety of reasons. And some, and, and one big reason is we live that time in their life. So, you know, there's people that have been fans, you know, or continue to be music fans, people, you know, everybody has a different story of what they're doing there. Longtime listeners of the show may remember that, uh, gosh, about five years ago, we had Ted Ottaviano on. By the way, they're not related. Well, they are, but distantly, actually. They're very distant, distant cousins. But anyway, um, we had Ted on the show about five years ago when they were out touring Again, uh, they just started touring again, and uh, they're touring still, and we uh, chatted with Susan about all that and where the band is at these days and all that kind of fun stuff. So we're going to have uh, the song of the week is going to be from Book of Love, I will tell you now. And before that, uh, it's my birthday weekend, so I thought I'd treat myself to my favorite all-time PFT recorder dumb bit. It's got everything you need. It's got uh, dumb conservatives. It's got progressive people who should know better. And uh, it's got nudity. So here you go. Newsbusters and their parent organization, the Media Research Center, and I'm using those annoying little air quotes when I say research, uh, anyway, they are vigilantly fighting an effort to boycott those who advertise on the Rush Limbaugh show. But don't worry, they still have time to attack a stay-at-home mom, which is the subject of this installment of... What kind of nonsense is that? Rita Templeton is a mommy blogger. She has her own website slash blog called Fighting the Frumpy. A few weeks ago, she wrote a post called The Naked Truth. A bit of an overused title, uh, if I do say so myself, uh, but it seems like every story about nudity seems to use that title, you know, the naked truth about celebrities, the naked truth about blah, blah, blah. But anyway, uh, her basic thesis was, and it was a good one, as the mother of four boys, ages two to nine, she decided that if her sons accidentally saw her naked getting out of the shower or whatever, seeing her get into her pajamas, whatever the case may be, she wouldn't freak out and, and might even view the situation as a positive. Now, the Huffington Post runs her stuff too, so like me, she's not making money from several places on the internet. They, of course, uh, picked up on this, uh, but they decided to change the title to Why I Want My Sons to See Me Naked, which is a completely different idea than the one she put forth in the original post. Now, if you've ever lived in a house with other family members, you know people walking on each other in various stages of nakedness. Uh, totally by accident, it just happens. Miss Templeton decided such situations were no big deal. She didn't, as the HuffPo version of the title implies, sit her sons down one day and say, Okay, boys, gather around. Mommy wants to show you something. No. She was talking about accidental nudity. If they happened to see her that way by accident, she would make a big deal out of it and make them feel like they did something horrible. She also reasoned that if they did happen to see her incidentally naked, that it would be, in the long run, maybe a good thing because it would instill a realistic expectation of what the female body looks like. Boring, but you know, in a good way, a healthy way. It's a good thought. Okay, this of course is where Newsbusters and the Media Research Center show up. Now, Newsbusters uh, and the Media Research Center, the Media Research Center owns Newsbusters, they're not the brightest bulbs on the internet, and uh, being the narrow-minded busybodies that they are, it's no surprise a headline like, Why I Want My Sons to See Me Naked is going to give them an embolism. So the Media Research Center writes a rather lengthy piece decrying her as the worst mom of 2014, and of course their sister site Newsbusters links to it. But in case the HuffPo's reworking of the title wasn't inaccurate enough, they titled their critique, Mommy Blogger Wants to Be First Nude Body, Young Sons See. And this is the first thing I saw on this, and when I saw it, worded like that by Newsbusters, I knew there was something fishy going on. Now, the Huffington Post also had Miss Templeton as a guest on their HuffPo Live streaming channel to discuss the piece. 
And understand that HuffPo bears some responsibility here because they clearly tried to position this as something titillating when it most certainly was not. The MRC and their piece even embed the video uh, in their critique, though they totally managed to draw one wrong conclusion after another. Host Ricky Camillari, for his part, tries his best to make this sound way more exciting than it really is. Politics to parenting, HuffPost blogs run the gamut. And every day at HuffPost Live, we like to shine a spotlight on some of the hottest blogs on our site. Mmm, hottest blogs. Go on, Ricky. Now, while mainstream thinking suggests that we cover up and maintain some modesty in front of our kids, it's... Spoiler alert, so does the person you're about to interview. One Iowa mom has made the choice not to be bashful around her young sons, both out of convenience and principle. In her blog, Why I Want My Sons to See Me Naked... Which is not the title of her blog. Her blog is Fighting the Frumpy. That's not even the title of the original post. All right, so... Now, I'm very pro-nudity, but I'm also very pro-modesty. Now, if it's hot out and there's no one else home and I want to wait to put on the air conditioning because, you know, I'm also cheap above all other things, well, you know, okay, sorry, I know, TMIPF. But I'm also the kind of guy who, when I go to the beach or a swimming pool, I'll wear a t-shirt even in the water, okay? So when she says this, I'm not naked more than the average person. I'm completely bummed out. Now, she even goes as far to say that she does teach modesty, like when it comes to using the bathroom. You poop with the door closed, and you close the door and you shower, and stuff like that. But she also realizes that it's hard to control four young boys. As much as I teach them about knocking and about modesty, they barge in. Kids do that. True that. But the best part of all this is toward the bottom of the Media Research Center piece, where they highlight some of the points she makes in the HuffPo live interview, but does so in the weirdest way. They call out where she says she wants to teach her children not to be ashamed of their bodies, but instead of using the whole quote, they just put the word ashamed in quotes as if to indicate that that's crazy talk. You should be ashamed of your body, and if you're not ashamed of your body, you'll make Jesus cry. They also point out that she says her partner understands all this and highlights just the word partner in quotes because to the Media Research Center, that's code for something evil. What's funny is she's not the one that brings up the word partner. Host Ricky Calamari does. What, what's, your, what's your partner's uh, nudity policy? So she just goes along with the word partner. In fact, she didn't even say the word partner. She just says he understands we've sat down and talked about it and so on. Now, remember the R in Media Research Center stands for research. So you think they would do some and find out who this partner, quote unquote, is. My guess is either they did and they didn't like the answer because it undermines their whole BS premise, or they were just that lazy and incompetent. Either scenario is likely. It took me less than a minute to find out who her partner is. Her partner is her husband. And it doesn't say how long they've been married, but they've been together since she was 17. Oh, sorry, Media Research Center. It's not a same-sex partner or some dude she's shacked up with and living in sin. But maybe next time, huh? Isn't this the kind of thing newsbusters and the MRC should celebrate? She's married to a man. She's had four kids with him. She chose life. She did not not have them. She's a stay-at-home mom. Her pretty little head isn't filled with notions of having a career outside the home and trying to do things that are best left to the menfolk. The Media Research Center and Newsbusters should have attacked HuffPo for trying to be click whores and using an innocent post about a common household occurrence to drum up page views. But instead, they try to take the moral high ground with a perfectly lovely woman who, from reading her blog, appears to be a fine mom. So let's review. Newsbusters and the Media Research Center are vigorously coming to the defense of Rush Limbaugh, a very wealthy, very powerful white male who is a noted misogynist, race baiter, homophobe, probable sex tourist, general bigot, and overall awful human being. And they instead are attacking a stay-at-home mom who has been married to a guy she's been with since she was 17, with whom she has four boys, she did not have four boys, she chose life, who lives in Iowa, the heart of the heartland, and they're attacking her because she decided not to freak out if her sons happened to accidentally see her naked. 
Okay, so we do not have a candidate for worst mother of 2014, no. What we do have, though, is a solid nomination for the most ridiculous thing ever posted by Newsbusters and the Media Research Center. And something that should make anyone reading it say, What kind of nonsense is that? Susan Adaviano is the lead singer and co-songwriter in the band Book of Love. Uh, they are out touring again. They are still celebrating the 30th anniversary of their astonishing debut album. Here now is our interview with Susan Adaviano. Hello, Susan. Hi, how you doing? Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, I would say it's uh, it's great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you too. Yeah, I think the last time we spoke was probably I'm going to call it 1990 on the Candy Carol tour. Really? Okay. Yeah, at the Metropole in Pittsburgh. And wow. Yeah, and I, I remember it's a, a really funny scene. Uh, we were backstage. Uh, there were a bunch of guys flocked around Ted, of course, and then me, my friend Tony, and my friend Tom talking to you, Jade, and Lauren. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a good time. Boy, I love that album, uh, Candy Carol. But um, thank you. Yeah. So I was gonna. Uh, gosh, I, I hardly know where where to even begin with um uh with the uh, with this um. Well, I guess so. What have you been doing since the uh, the original Book of Love days? I guess that'd probably be a good place to start. Catch folks um, up. After we broke up, I had a I've had a whole career as a food stylist. Um, I do food for TV and print and commercials, things like that. Oh, cool. So I, I did that for many years, and I did some of my own artwork, and uh, uh, it was a surprise to me that we, you know, got back on the road. I guess it's been um, it's been more than five years now since we, we started back, so um, I'm kind of as surprised as you are, but, but <laughs> things have been going well, and we've enjoyed being back on the road again. Well, I'm sure the the fan base was certainly avid for years and years to have you guys uh, get back together. And uh, I think we, I talked to Ted, and he was on the podcast when you guys first started doing shows again. Uh, mm-hmm. I interviewed him for the show in Houston a couple of years ago, and I forget yes. what he told. Completely forgot what he told me. So, from your perspective, what brought the group uh, back together? I know he'd been working with a group called the Myrmidons, and right. uh, so and, uh, I guess uh, you know several different. You know, people had encouraged us to do shows. I think if you talked to Ted when we first started, I think Texas was one of the first places we uh, went back to and and, uh, to see that there was an audience um, that was still out there. And uh, it sort of uh, started slowly. And then we did, um, you know, we did a few shows. And then Jade and Lauren weren't really interested in, in, in traveling. So then I think we were able to move forward um with Ted and I doing the shows when we decided to to uh, kind of work without them and um the the two new songs that were on that uh on the best of uh, how did those yes. come out all girl band and uh something good um well I think all girl band is sort of a nod to our past and how we got started uh being in a band by being a fan and, and then going to clubs and starting our own, uh, our own band. And I think that was the sort of the attitude and the, um, what was going on in music at the time. So uh, that was a little bit back to our roots and um, Something Good was another song that we worked on um, during that time period. So, so those... it, was, it was fun to write again and, and work on a new book of love songs. 
Yeah, they are cool. Um, I liked All Girl Band just fine. I loved Something Good. That was one of my favorite songs oh, of, of the year that year. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, that song is really, um, you know, the kind of thing I like to do. So we're really excited with that. You know, sometimes we're kind of a non-LPB side kind of band, but right, right. not always what uh, gets you the big bucks. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, well, we. Um, I remember you had posted a long time ago on Facebook, um, I think it was maybe for the anniversary of the release of the single "Boy," and you know, saying how that song kind of uh, helped change things for uh, for a lot of young people back in the '80s. I don't think people remember the '80s. While it was a time, uh, a pretty liberal time, it wasn't nearly like it is now, and how accepting well, that's people the life were. That we're living right now, especially yeah. because uh, at that time, you know, people felt uh, you know alienated in their hometown. They felt like they yep. didn't belong, and they didn't really have an outlet for it. They had to try really hard. You didn't like turn on the TV and watch Wu's Paul's Drag Race or anything like that. Now, um, you know, it's a different world. So we meet people that um, the music really affected at that time, and really, um, and just like it was for us, music is just a, um, a great thing to unite people and and. Um, and uh, it's just, um, you know, it, it kind of saved me, and I, I really appreciate that it did the same, our music did the same for other people, for other people, I mean. And I think what's often forgotten, though, in that is uh, I would credit you guys and certainly Erasure and uh, Communards probably a little bit, too, is that it also opened the door on the other side to tell people, hey, we're all just people, you know? We're all, we all enjoy the, you know, we all enjoy music. We all enjoy, you know, going out to clubs and things like that. And it wasn't, you know, I think that really helped subtly push things forward uh, to get where we are today. Well, I almost think that it did, but then it also, I mean, when I first started listening to music and we were going to clubs, we'd see all different um, genres and then it kind of got really you know i don't like when things get really you know you just like this one type of band or you just yeah. like synth pop or you know that kind of thing wasn't our deal we'd see a lot of um new music uh, and different types of bands each night so i i, I love that and you know well that was the best part about uh, the 80s is that you know even in the charts uh there were still different kinds of music to where now i hate to be the old guy that says their music's not good today. Well, it's, it's music good. It's just when it comes to the charts, though, there's a lot of sameness to the charts here and in the UK. Where back in the day, you could have you know Howard Jones in the charts and UB40 and REM and all yeah. the, all these different kinds of and even the occasional country song up in there. And uh, I guess it's still that way in a way, but just not on the charts. I reckon. Yeah, I don't know how you would be in the music business today. I mean, there are no records. There isn't. A, um, you know, back in the day, we didn't think we made money by being on the road. And now yeah. that's the only way to make money. So, I, you know, all this free content is, is a real problem. You yeah. know, I don't really understand how people are going to keep doing it and getting paid in every area. Yeah, another thing I think that really uh, hamstrung you guys along with a bunch of other bands at the time, including the one my buddy and I were trying to start was, and we didn't realize this till much later, of course, was the fact that uh, by the end, by the 90s, you know, you all you guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time because here came grunge and and yeah. you guys and Information Society and Cause and Effect and all those people, bands you were all friendly with, I, 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 I know, um, just got steamrolled by that, which always kind of amazed me because I'm like, well, that's fine. These these bands are fine, but why do we have to wipe out everything else that came before? <laughs> that always seemed... Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, we were having, you know, some 
uh, internal problems with the group at that time, and and uh, we didn't want to go on for that reason. But really, I don't feel like you know we could do anything right at that at that moment in time. You know, Melody wasn't the um, you know the flavor of the day, and yeah. sort of you know you live and die by the sword a little bit there. Yeah, exactly. I remember uh, a record executive telling me at a. I used to work at a at a record store. And uh, we were at a convention. It was a big chain record store. And um, I asked him, what what happened with Cause and Effect? Because they'd released their second album, and it, it went nowhere. And the guy told me, we hate them, and they hate us. And I was like, ugh. Oh, I guess that explains a lot then. And then, of course, uh, my favorite band, Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark, uh, he folded up the whole tent there in the mid-'90s because he was like, people don't want this anymore. And uh, yeah. thankfully, things turned around. And... Um, have, well, I think everything goes in waves. Art always yeah. goes in waves, you know. And um, it's you know, there's something about in the air, and, and there's something about being part of your um, your time, and and uh, you know that can be a good thing, and also can bite you the butt. <laughs> so, uh, looking back, what are some of your fondest memories of you know Book of Love, starting from like you know the mid '80s when when Boy starts happening? And uh, and on through touring with the Pesha Mode and all that. I think that you know, I mean, the reason why we started the band is because we love music and and we love performing and 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 uh, we love the music that we were listening to and wanted to make it as well. So I think some of the early times were you know especially fun for us. I think some of the Depeche Mode tours. I mean, we have different. You know, we were really learning and we were very very young when we were on the original Depeche Mode tours. So it was definitely. Uh, trial by fire, and, and, and I think that going along, I mean, today, the thing that's the most important to me is just how much the music is meant to the fans, and that um, in our own small way, we made our mark, and that means a lot to me. What was it like touring with the Peshmo? Did you hang out with those guys much? Or? It was great. I mean, like I said, we were very young. It was a big tour that was going everywhere, and a lot of traveling. They were great to work with, and they were very nice to be with, like, a very inexperienced band. I mean, when we went on the first tour, we had never played for more than 200 people, and then, you know, we've got an arena every night in Europe, so we sort of had to burn fast. <laughs> oh, I forgot, yeah, I forgot about that. You guys started, with two, and then Daniel Miller kind of became a, a fan, and he remixed um, uh, I Touch Roses. Yeah, I mean, one of my big regrets is I wish we could have been on, on Daniel's label in England, because I think we, if we had had a stronger presence, in the UK, I think we would have been a much bigger band, but they weren't allowed to have us because we were signed to WIA worldwide, so we oh. weren't able to, to go with Daniel. And, and, you know, they really took care of their artists, they developed their artists, and, you know, that didn't really happen for us. Yeah, I mean, I, Sire was not the worst label to be on, but I think, yeah, if you... The momentum had to no, be going. I mean, Sire was a great yeah. label to be on in the U.S., um, definitely, you know? I'm just saying it's different there, and oh yeah, you know, well with with yeah, we were part of the big um, Warner machine by by the end there. Yeah, I don't know if our last album was on Warner. I think our our best of is on Warner. Uh, so um, it's different, and and Seymour was definitely a part of all those things earlier on in his career. It's weird to think that uh, the Depeche Mode guys that deal's never been never been more than a handshake. There's never been anything <laughs> been written down. Um, yeah, well, that's kind of the way that Daniel ran that label. So they were able to really keep a lot of quality control. It, you know, a lot of it's the difference between this country and the UK. I mean, true. You know, it doesn't 
work that way here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, the charts are more fluid there. So it's, you know, if you can get on top of the pops, if you can, if you, someone I read somewhere, they said, if you can just get into the top 50, you can leap, you know, into the high up into the chart, you know, you get into the bottom part of the 50, and you get on top of the pops. And if you're good enough, boom, you're, you know, and it's not that way here at all, of course, or, or never was. Um, and then when those groups came to the U.S., they had, a, a you know, uh, they had that backbone to work from. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, I mean, how did you guys do over in Europe apart from, you know, uh, I, I assume you were pretty well received. I don't... Uh... Yeah, I thought it was great, but we really didn't, we didn't play Europe uh, much after that. I don't know why exactly. And I, I'm kind of, I still personally wonder why we didn't, you know, usually... Um, you know, where we go is sort of where we continue to um, have a following, where we did well. So, oh, yeah, um, that makes sense. But I, I, I don't know, and I can't really comment on the European market since I don't really totally understand it. But yeah, it was exciting to do those shows when we were so young. Yeah, I remember um, when that album, the album first came out, uh, I being completely blown away. I just became music director of the college radio station, and I took home. I took home three albums. One was Book of Love. The other was the Bodine's Love and Hope and Sex and Dreams. You know, I can't remember what the third one was. But uh, <laughs> both of those albums, and in such a dichotomy there, you know, this quartet from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, playing kind of twangy rock, and then yeah. you guys from New York City playing uh, the synth. Boy, and I was always jealous of how uh, Ted got those snare sounds. And my f- partner, John, and I finally asked him, I think at that backstage, we're like, how do you get those snare sounds? And he goes, I take them off other records. We're like, God damn it, that's how you do it. <laughs> we were st- well, the thing is, that didn't work for us. <laughs> then come, uh, what year is it? Like 1990, and now we, you can't do that anymore. That no. Was, that whole thing changed, but, but that, was, yeah. that was a fun time. And then we got to work with, you know, a lot of interesting producers, and we worked with Flood on our second album. Which oh, yeah. exciting. Yeah. Uh, so... So did you get, um, and that was an interesting, really interesting time in music. Definitely. Um, yeah. Did you guys? Do you guys get a chance to like? I know you did the the two newer songs. Do you get a chance much to work on uh, even newer songs these days, or is it just rehearsing for the shows? Because you know you guys have other commitments. Um, what do you? I guess we're still debating on. You know, it's a hard market right now about releasing new material. You know. So I don't know how we feel about going on and doing another album. I mean, people are not buying, you know, are not buying albums, and it's hard to make one if no one's, you know, if all the content is free. That's true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and people at this point want to hear the hits. So I guess. Well, that's for the legacy market. That's definitely the case. You yeah. know what I mean? They they're not necessarily. I mean, people are coming to shows for a variety of reasons. And some of, and and one big reason is to sort of, you know, we live that time in their life. So you know, there's people that have been fans, you know, or continue to be music fans. People, that, you know, everybody has a different story of what they're doing there. But yeah, um, you know, about selling new records, I, I don't know. So I'm curious, what kind of stuff? I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's going to oh. change? Do you think that how you know people? It's just not going to be a way that anybody could make any money, and they just have to do it. Because they want to do it, or I, I think the two big things are like you said, it's touring is going to be the thing. I think it goes to this thing well, it in, my, is. in my other yeah. lines of work, yeah, where it's it's all about experience, and if you can provide that, and not just with music, but with everything, it's like like movie theaters and stuff too. People always thought movie theaters were going to die, but people like to go out and do stuff, and I think yeah. people still like to go out, and you know, with the popularity of festivals and stuff, it proves that live music 
is you know still viable and and yeah. people will will pay to um you know to see a, a good band and um you know it's still a good value a lot of times you can go see a decent band for you know around 20 25 bucks that's a that's a pretty good deal yeah. and um and the other thing i think it's going to be uh that people get really upset with this when bands end up selling their music to either tv shows or to commercials i couldn't be happier because yeah. that means the band's making money. Now, I may get tired of the song sooner than I wanted to, or I may equate that song with a product, unfortunately. That's kind of the downside of it. But as long as the band's making money and they can continue to make yeah. records, well, then there you have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that is the goal at this point. You know, that's the best thing that could happen. Yeah. Whereas that, back in the day, that was something you didn't want to do. Oh, no. <laughs> that was that was the worst thing you could do. But I also think people are a little more savvy now, and they realize, well, hey, if yeah. my band's still going to make money... You know, it's yeah. it's gonna yeah. Because even if you have a hit record nowadays, the only people that are making money selling records are Taylor Swift, and that's it. Yeah, and that's because her audience, you know, buys physical. Co- I, I'm still a physical copy guy. My friend Pat's a physical yeah. copy guy, but there not aren't many well, of us. Well, it seems like it's down to the collectors, you know. Yes, yeah, very much so. That's fact, all that that are buying. And uh, speaking of, I still have my collection of Book of Love twelve inches. Uh, here, here, here in my basement. Well, you need to bring him to the show. Or are you going to be in? Now, are you? Where are you based? Cincinnati. Oh, you are in Cincinnati. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, okay, com- I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming to the show. show next week. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm bringing my mate um, from uh, who he, he was also in a band back in the '90s. Uh, my friend Greg, who uh, not too familiar with Book of Love, unfortunately. He uh, even though he was in kind of a new wave daddy, he was in a band that was kind of like uh, they might be giants esque. And yeah. ran into the same problems you guys did. Was that nobody wanted that nonsense in 1990? They wanted Soundgarden and Nirvana and things yeah. like that. But um, but he's looking forward to coming to the show too. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, couldn't convince my wife to come to the show, but um, <laughs> which is weird because she drove me when we were in college. We were just friends. Uh, I begged her to drive me to Cleveland to see you guys at Peabody's, and she had a good time. Oh wow, I remember that. That's the place that you were talking about. That was, but we. Oh, no, that was in that was in Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, I saw you in Cleveland, okay. Pittsburgh. Gosh, I've Cleveland, probably seen right. you guys at but least we played at, three times. I think Bogarts in Cincinnati, right? You might have. Yeah, that was before my time. Because by the time okay. you, I don't think you guys toured after Candy Carol, or if you did, I, I don't know. If, what was it? Love Bubbles? At, wait, I'm giving them. Yeah, yeah Love Bubbles after we Candy. We didn't do like you know, Cincinnati was on the every you know like the really big tour. I don't think it made yeah. it to the if we did this you know like sixteen dates or something. Yeah, I reckon you guys were I had here. looked on our list, and I thought we hadn't been there since Candy Carol. Yeah, okay, that makes sense then, yeah. But I, I saw the Candy Carol tour in Pittsburgh, so I was living there, and I I think you were touring, I think we were still touring the first album when I saw you, and you must have been, because I was in college, and my wife was still in college, she was a year behind me, so yeah, that must have been it. And either you or Anastasia, the famous music critic, bummed a cigarette off my wife. I don't know which one of you it was, but you were both standing there, so I don't. I, and I thought that was. Was the cool it like? Is that the Cleveland Plain Dealer or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that was Anastasia from the Plain yeah, Dealer. Yeah, like yeah. I, I actually remember that because I think I got a bad review. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm shocked. Um, man. I remember. I remember those. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's... Well, I don't know if I do because my memory is just, you know. It's hard. <laughs> it is. It's, it's it's weird the things that uh, you do remember, but uh, I remember. Yeah, that's what it is. It's strange. I, I, we're finding that we remember. Uh, you don't even remember things that had to do with you or that were important. They're just like random. <laughs> yeah, because I, I I interview comedians a lot, and I was telling one of them that um, I know the. The 80s I know distinctly because of the years I was in high school and college, and yeah. a little after that. Then after that, I got married in 92. We had our kids in 97 and 2004. 
everything else is just a big blur. The two the two thousands <laughs> is just I don't know. That was thirteen years ago, really. It's it's just so weird. Yeah, but, um, it's sort of like I'm like, oh, I saw them like five years ago. I mean, maybe it was ten. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, and now I've seen you guys at least three. I might have seen you twice in Pittsburgh because I'm pretty sure I would have seen the Lullaby tour. I know I saw the Lullaby tour. Well, I didn't think we played in Pittsburgh that much, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think, but I know for sure. Opening for Depeche Mode, Pittsburgh I saw one was of those. When we went to that Pro Manny's place, that like yeah, 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 like a, where they put yeah, the French fries on top. Yeah, yeah. Pittsburgh. There you go, <laughs> for Manny's, hilarious. <laughs> um, so, what, what kind of music do you listen to these days? What's uh, uh, um, well, I guess I listen to you know a variety of things. My son listens to rap music, so there's a lot of that going on here, um, and um, you know I listen to. Uh, what have I been liking? Like, you know, like Beach House and. Um, oh yeah, they're great. Uh, I like Camera Obscura, Keen, things like that. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. They're not exactly that contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm always trying to find new bands because my kids listen to. What's where my uh, youngest actually? Her favorite bands are uh, her favorite band is the Clash. Uh, she also likes. Oh, really? the, she likes the. She also, she also likes the Beach Boys, Weezer. Yeah. And then uh, the new artist she like Rat Boy. He's uh, this kid from England. Um, the band is Rat Boy, and he's also called Rat Boy. Uh, she likes him. That's probably her favorite right now. And uh, what's the uh, Declan McKenna and um, and uh, Wallows Wallows. Um, so she's got a pretty wide palette, and so does my oldest daughter. In fact, my oldest daughter, uh, Plug, just got an internship at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So my kids know their stuff. And uh, they like most of what I like. Um, they uh, they hate OMD and don't want to go OMD with me. Oh, and speaking of, uh, I want to plant this seed for you guys. Um, I don't know if you what kind of commitment you guys can be at on the road, but OMD is jumping off uh, their B-52s tour for a couple of select dates, opening, uh, not op- headlining, and they're going to be headlining here in Cincinnati. You guys should be opening for OMD. Oh, that we'd love to open for OMD. Yeah, I don't know who's putting that together, but I thought I'd just put that out there. Yeah. Um, well, terrific. We're a week away from the show. No, I'd love to play with OMG because we actually haven't oh, man, that'd be... played with them. We played with Human League this year, which that was, oh, really, yeah. that was really a great deal. We really enjoyed In Las that. Vegas, yeah. I was uh, I, I posted all over my Facebook page. I'm like, I need to go to this. Of course, I you know, couldn't fly all the way to Vegas. For it was, it was great, and they were terrific and really you know, kind of trailblazers. So oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, another. In fact, that was kind of the first sort of date my wife and I went on. I had to. I think I actually drove that time to uh, Detroit to see those guys, and we wow. came. We came back. I dropped her off at her apartment, and I said, uh, "Am I going to get a kiss good night?" And she said, "I hate you," thinking I was teasing her. And I was like, "No, I was serious. I really wanted a kiss." So. <laughs> Fun story. Um, and the rest is history. And the rest is history. Well, eventually the rest was history. It, it took a while. It was a slow burn. But um, uh, looking forward to the show next Friday night. Um, very excited. And uh, and uh, I'm not going to look at the set list beforehand. I'm going to be surprised. And, okay. Um, and uh, yeah. And well, you have tickets and everything. It's okay for you to come to that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I've got a. Uh, okay. I, I got one through the booker. I'm going to try and uh, make it a plus one to get my friend Greg in. If not, we'll just put the cost of a ticket. Uh, not a problem. Well, great. You call me if there's any problem. Oh, that. terrific. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, good talking to you again. And, uh, yeah, great talking to you, too. Hope to hear more of Book of Love in the future, certainly. And good luck with yes. your other endeavors. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Susan. I'll talk to you soon. Right. Have okay. a great weekend. Right. You too. Bye-bye. 
thanks again to Susan Adaviano for being on the show. Like I said, uh, they are still touring, Book of Love is, uh, and she explained during the show the um, the first album came out in 1986, so the 30th anniversary was uh, 2016. They started uh, touring again, although I think they were actually touring a little bit before that. They had reformed and were doing shows, but uh, they went out on the road to celebrate that astonishing debut album, and uh, they have been out on the road kind of ever since, on and off. I mean, they have other uh, things that they're still doing, so... Uh, they hit the road every, you know, couple of weekends a year. They have a lot more shows coming up in 2019. Uh, she, Susan said from the stage uh, at the show in Cincinnati that uh, they were about done with this 30th anniversary tour, but they still have dates through the rest of the year. They're going to be in Las Vegas May 11th with Human League, then in San Francisco with Human League uh, a couple of days after that, and then they've got Portland, San Antonio, Oklahoma City. Just go to bookoflovemusic.com, and you can find out all you need to know about Book of Love. Go to Spotify, I recommend listening to them, or just buy the albums even better. Uh, so let me do give my review of the show here, uh, my review of Book of Love. Um, well, it wasn't the four of them, it was just the two of them, which would be uh, a Ted and Susan, and you might think, well, that's, you know, it, it, that's probably fine, you probably have the, the two key elements in the band, but still, it was kind of, some, something wasn't quite right without, you know, uh, Lauren and Jade there uh, swaying behind their keyboards and adding their backing vocals and things like that, but it was still amazing. OMD do the same thing. When it's just Paul and Andy sometimes, it'll, Paul will bring his laptop, Andy's got his bass, and there you go. But it's also, you know, kind of a different show when uh, Malcolm, well, not Malcolm can't tour anymore, but when um, when uh, Martin Cooper and uh, who is the guy that's their, their backup drummer now? He was the backup drummer from uh, from the when Andy was just OMD. Uh, I can't remember. I'm sorry. Anyway, but uh, great show. Uh, small club. They uh, actually filled it up pretty good. I was uh, pleasantly surprised. What was interesting about the crowd is that normally at an 80s show, you see mostly old folks like me, but you see a lot of kids either have gotten an interest in the music or maybe were dragged there by their parents or maybe the, the, the parents exposed them to the music, but not the case. It was all old folks, which is kind of a shame because, um, well, first of all, if you know anything about Book of Love, if you're familiar, they, they appeared on a couple of soundtracks. They're on the soundtrack for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, Medigliani, the song, when the, the train breaks down, that's playing right before the, the train breaks down in strands, uh, Steve Martin and John Candy in the middle of Missouri. Um, they were in a couple of other soundtracks as well. They opened for Depeche Mode on the Black Celebration Tour. You might have seen them there. And their big tunes back then, Boy was probably the signature tune, their first single. Uh, the greatest song ever of the 80s, just about You Make Me Feel So Good. Uh, like I said, Medigliani was in the, uh, the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But anyway, uh, the, the thing about Book of Love that's interesting, and we talked about this in the interview, of course, and Susan talked about this from the stage, is, you know, they, she said they were, like, the first band to say, it, it's okay to be who you are, you know, to like who you want to like, as it were, if, if you catch my drift. And uh, that, I would say, is very true. Uh, it may be only before that, maybe Bronski beat over in Britain, but really you're talking about the same time, 1983, when Book of Love released Boy uh, as their first single. Uh, and, you know, Bronski beat, you know, and ran up against, I would say, a lot of resistance, even from progressive people who should know better. But the other important thing about this, and then, you know, I would credit Erasure and then Communards and, and some other bands like that with also doing it. But another important thing, especially with the Book of Love and a little bit with Erasure, is not only did it teach, you know, young gay kids, hey, it's okay to be who you are, it taught a heterosexual community, hey, it's no big deal, everybody. It's no big deal. Everybody is people. Like our friends Depeche Mode, people are people. Well, that song is more about race, but you get my point. All right, so 
Anyway, and beyond that, you know, Book of Love had just had some cracking tunes. And yeah, I think Book of Love does suffer from the uh, what we would call the Weezer problem. Or uh, who's the other group that has the that I was just thinking of the other day that kind of has this? The 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 or the Strokes. The first album is so astonishing that everything else kind of like you know really has to play catch up behind it. But there's still a lot of great stuff if you dig into the catalog of, of all three of these bands. Uh, a lot of great. The other albums are are great too. It's just that, you know, you get smacked in the face with, like, the Blue Album and Book of Love and The Strokes' first album. Those are the three that I can think of off the top of my head that are just, you know, you know, so, so, so great. And so we did get a lot of songs from the first album. Oddly, I did not get to hear one of my other favorite songs of theirs from the first album, uh, White Lies. You Make Me Feel So Good was brilliant. Uh, pretty nice set, kind of a short set. Uh, they only did about 17 songs or so. But, you know, it's, it's all old folks. You want to get home. You know, be home in bed, watch a little TV before you go to bed. So I guess that worked out pretty good for everybody. Um, and yeah, that was uh, it was it was really great. If you have a chance to catch the show, uh, do do it. It's another I think a case too where it's probably a band where you probably remember more than you realize. You'll hear the songs and go, oh yeah, you know what I have heard this. And the crowd loved it. Most of the crowd knew all the songs, uh, every word. Although it was weird, they did um, uh, Miss Melancholy was a tune I think is from can't remember which album it's from. I think it's from Turn the World. Anyway, uh, they uh, she, uh, Susan sang that one song very close to her. It's about being depressed when you're in your 20s and kind of how you get out of it and stuff like that. So it's kind of it's a mellow song. And then uh, the drum machine kicks in for You Make Me Feel So Good. And people are still sitting. And I'm turning around, and I'm like, I'm with my mate Greg. And I'm turning out to tell people, get the F up. And this couple behind me is like, yeah, yeah. And then finally people realize what song it was, and everybody got into it. And it was amazing. So, again, yeah, catch Book of Love. Go to Book of Love Music. Dot com and that'll tell you all you can look at the discography and you can find out where they're going to be playing shows uh, in 2019 and yeah there you have it so song of the week from book of love i've played you make me feel so good a lot on the show i feel in various forms and i wanted to pick something that was um a little more upbeat so i'm going to go with a song they did not play from their third album which uh, i love and is the title track of the uh, album, I just missed it as Turn the World. The album is actually called Candy Carol, and the title track is Candy Carol, and this is just a lovely song, uh, great harmonies, and uh, it's, just a, it's just a banger. So here you go. Candy Carol is going to be our song of the week. It's from Book of Love on PS Tape Recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. Cheers.